listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. And I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. In season one of Superpower Curiosity, we're focusing on how to overcome divisiveness and why we feel so much better when we do. To read all about this, check out Richard's recent book, It's a Freaking Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. In this episode of Superpower Curiosity, we're featuring a discussion between Richard and a very special guest. Here's Richard. Thank you, Molly. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Randy Kale, clinical psychologist with extraordinary depth of experience, a man who is unafraid to travel to new ground or challenge old paradigms. Dr. Kale is the creator of the blog and much frequented website, Terrific Parenting. His blogs include titles like Bye Bye Bedtime Battles and The Tantrum Fixer. He has offered over 300 workshops on teaching parenting techniques. His bi-monthly Terrific Parenting email goes out to thousands of parents, and he writes a weekly newspaper column on psychological insights and guidance. Dr. Kale is also in the vanguard of psychological understanding and techniques for adults. He trained with Richard Bandler, co-originator of neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. He's a family systems therapist, a cognitive behavioral therapist, a breathing technique specialist, and he gives optimal performance training through the new science of neurofeedback. One of the things I admire about Randy is the breadth of his learning. Randy has a non-partisan attitude about psychological methods. He believes that having a broad tool chest of methods gives him the greatest opportunity to serve others. And choosing from these methods to best fit each situation, Randy offers simple, practical, and proven methods to help others live with more ease, find more joy, and create more of what they want. And this has benefited many, many people. Now, for all of you listening to this podcast, please pour yourself a cup of kindness and take a seat with Randy and me in the Curiosity Room. Randy, welcome to the Curiosity Room. Richard, thank you for having me, and thank you for that very sweet introduction. Oh, you are most welcome. Well, Randy, I, I mentioned in that intro a few of the psychological methods and paradigms you've learned and, and that you've used to help others, and I know there are a lot more. I was just saying in my intro to you that you worked for some time with Richard Bandler, co-originator of Neurolinguistic Programming, NLP. And I imagine you learned some interesting things from Richard Bandler. Can you mention one thing that you learned that maybe you found surprising at the time, but which was of lasting value to you, either to you personally or, or to your practice? Probably the, the one fundamental that most changed my whole trajectory was one of the premises of NLP 
which is that everybody's doing the best they can all the time, regardless of what you think. And while I didn't understand at the time the depth of that, and now my work doing neurofeedback it makes that even more clear to me, but it, it did help approach every single client with this sense of compassion and understanding so that the way you then look at the past is very different than traditional psychology would have you. So that premise and then watching him operate, so to speak, in a room or to work with clients, with that as a fundamental, because with that also came this idea that that I think you, you're well aware of, Richard, which is, you know, your past does not equal the future. And so he had these presuppositions when he would work with clients that would enable him to make these sort of massive changes that became uh, seemed magical at the time, really. And then after you know learning some of those skills, you realize like it's really possible. But that presupposition was probably the biggest game changer for me in terms of how to look at the world and really, in a deep manner, understand that every single one of us is doing the best that we can. And in every thought, every idea, every time we want to argue against our our mother, our father, our brother, our wife, our husband, our partner, our kids. It just, it's insanity every time we do that. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, I can really resonate with that. Uh, and I think it's, it's wonderful to have that idea because as you said, it's, it's so compassionate. Um, yeah. did, did Richard Bandler actually use those words that everyone is doing the best they can with, with what they've got? Or oh, yeah. did he express it in a, in a different form? No, that was pretty much, as I remember, pretty much the fundamental uh, form that it, we're, everybody's doing the best. We're all doing our best. And yeah, uh, yes. And, and we're all doing best w within the particular map of the world and the map of humanity that we have accrued during our lifetimes. Oh, Yes, it's very co complex what's happening in this moment. You know, the tendency of the mind and the ego as we simplify things, I should do this or you should do that. And the reality is that any behavioral manifestation is a result of a remarkably complex interaction of, of not just billions of neurons, but literally trillions of connections in those neurons in the brain, right? Yeah, to absolutely. Produce, to produce that moment. And so when we simplify, well, oh, that should have been a different moment. That's what I mean by, by insanity. But also, I think it's important as we're having this discussion, Richard, for people listening to understand that, that that applies to everything up to this very instant, right? A butterfly could land on your fingertip and you could be touched in a way that could profoundly change the trajectory of your life from that point forward. So yes. uh, it's really about how we look with compassion upon ourselves and others, and it, but it, it doesn't mean that it, it, it's, it's some future destiny that we have to then live out. Yes. I, I love the image of the butterfly because you could imagine you know, somebody, somebody reacting with alarm that the butterfly is on them and brushing it off, and you can also imagine someone uh, being deeply moved by this moment of contact with another being. Mm. And it's just uh, so many choices in, in the moment. And as you say, all those choices are affected by uh, 
billions and billions of, of, of things. Yes, yes. I, I was very uh, amazed by reading that uh, we have more electrons in our bodies than there are grains of sand on this earth. And <laughs> I mean, just that is just mind blowing to me. It, it's staggering. It's staggering what it takes for a thought to move into conscious recognition. There have to be in the brain somewhere between 50 and 70,000 neurons firing in sync for the thought to move into conscious aware, awareness. Wow, that's, a, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you see all these, all these pre-conscious thoughts are there, but they don't move into conscious awareness. It's, it, we are amazing, fascinating machines. Yes, yes. Well, I, the, the, other, the other figure that I, that I love is, is the um, trillions and trillions of cells that we have in our, in our bodies. And, and each one of those cells is more complex than a space shuttle with all its computers and you know, yeah. everything in it. Yes. And you think about that, it's amazing. So, so then I, I started visualizing this. And I thought, okay. So if each of our cells is as complex as a space shuttle, actually more complex, and we imagine all those cells converted into space shuttles, this would create, this is just one person's body, this would create a, a layer of space shuttles all over this Earth, uh, 20 space shuttles thick. <laughs> wow. And, and, and you, you think about that and you think, Oh my God, the, the complexity within just one body is just staggering, you know, amazing. It is, it is staggering. And I, at some point in our conversation, it will be important that we emphasize because we don't want folks to think, well, because it's, because the inner workings are so complex, almost like a computer, right? The, the computer is remarkably complex, but most of us have no clue about how that is, what, what's going on there. We just want to learn how to operate it. And in a sense, my passion, I know part of your passion is really, how do we operate this complex machinery to get the best life possible? And that doesn't have to be as complex. In fact, it can be relatively simple. Yes, I so much agree with that. And, and sometimes simply having a powerful intention or developing strong habits is enough to instigate changes in all this complex machinery. Yes, yes. Our, our, our conversation about the complexity is really along the lines of compassion and to understand how what's showing up within a human being, ourselves, others, our parents, friends, neighbors, etc. Whatever's showing up is the result of not only genetic coding, not only the, the millions of moments of their experience, but everything they ate, what they're allergic to, what they drank, what they read, what they watched. There we go. You know, it just goes on and on. So well, that moment is represents all that complexity. But for us, as change agents for others, uh, we it, that's to bring compassion there, but it's not how we go about getting changed, trying to understand. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to go back to the uh, space shuttle analogy, uh, which is that if you are driving, I should say flying, I guess, flying a space shuttle, uh, you do not have to understand the complexity of all the creators of the space shuttle. You do not have to understand the computers. There's, there's most of it you do not need to understand. You need to uh, press a few buttons. 
and as, as the flyer of the spaceship and as the flyer of our bodies, uh, the, the, there are certain buttons that uh, are very important, like intention, uh, creating habits that, uh, that are become ingrained and, and, and so on. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in, uh, habits, intentions, learning to manage your emotions because the emotions affect all the all that yes. complexity that we're talking about. So, uh, broadly yes. speaking, positive states tend to create healthier, happier, longer living, more successful uh, lives, of course, and negative states tend to create the opposite. Uh, and so. Uh, how do we do that becomes becomes the magic, right? Well, that's a, a good segue into, into uh, one of the things that I've been speaking about in these podcasts is, is how to overcome anger and fear. And, and you know, we all recognize these, these emotions, of course, have their positive uses, for example, in handling physical danger. But also, as you're just saying, if we get caught in them, they uh, they have a negative effects on us, let's put it that way. They take away our intelligence, they take away our peacefulness and our joy. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, yes, they, if you think about for most of us, the number of times in our life that we've actually been threatened physically, right? Or, or being chased by a tiger are, are very slim. And now for some folks listening, yeah. they may have grown up in an environment where there was uh, an abusive parent, but the, yes. but those moments are are in a history book somewhere. But our brains are set up because of the emotional intensity. We tend to keep that alive, and that's that's really what you're referring to, then, right, Richard? The the, the ways that we hold on to this anger, the frustration, and then bring that into the present life with those we love or care about in circumstances that do not warrant the level of intensity that we bring to those moments. Exactly. So, yes, the fear and anger itself, of course, can be incredibly useful in certain situations. And it's, it's when we get caught in them, they, they hang on to them, and our brains are working through their limbic circuitry, their, the primitive brain, and we then cut off our, our, our intelligence and our capacity for joy, peacefulness, kindness, respect, uh, so so much of what we actually love, what we truly love to do, yes, gets yes. Uh, swamped by these, uh, uh, by the sense of danger, let's put it that way. Well, and, and it's interesting, as, as we're having this discussion, you know, part of the challenge is that as we acknowledge fear, anger, depression, sadness, these unwanted states, right? Yeah. It's as if we can start, we, we can end up talking about the thing we don't want and, and go to therapy and spend hours, read books about all the things that we don't want, don't yes. like, don't agree with. And therein lies the very problem because the brain, by its interest in giving attention to that, is expanding and, and perpetrating more of it in our future. So if in talking about anger, fear, sadness, we aren't immediately interested in the opposite of that, 
and what appeals to us and where we're going and what we want. And too often, I don't know about you, Richard, when I start to have these discussions with folks, they'll say, well, of course I want to be happy. And then they go back to talking about what makes them angry. And, and you can sort of see yes. the, the mind much more interested in holding on to the anger and, and the victim state that comes with that, right? And, and then fighting to become more interested in, well, what would it like to be free of that, to be happy, to be joyous, to be thinking about things that make you giggle and laugh and, and that make you want to jump in the lake or you know, go run in the rain. Or last night we were laying down the road outside watching you know, just a remarkable meteor shower. Dozens. Right, right. You know, it just went on and on. These moments that will otherwise go by uh, as if they are, are unimportant, but that's what we've got to seek, right? We've got to become more interested in what's going to fill us with joy and happiness and ease than what's brought us pain in the past. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I, I was uh, talking some years ago, I was talking to a guy who was suicidal. And it, it was strange in one sense, because when he talked about his current life, things were, were going very well on many different levels. And he had no complaints about his, his uh, current life. So uh, I asked him what, did he, if he wrote a journal, and he said he did. And I said, well, what do you write about in your journal? And he said, well, I, I write about all the things that happened in my childhood that, that, were, uh, that didn't go well and that were bad and, and painful and, and hurt me. And uh, so I said, well, how would you like to try an experiment? Um, for the next week, only write in your journal about the things that happen to you that you feel positive about, that you that give you joy, and that uh, give you a sense of peacefulness. And he said, "Okay, I'm willing to try that." Anyway, I saw him a week later, and he was it was very amazing. He he was over the moon. He said, "He said this is amazing. I I just feel so much better." And I happened to see this guy. I only saw him professionally twice. I happened to see him two years later. And he said, you know, ever since I, I changed my journal habits from basically from what went wrong to what went right, my life has changed. And I'm, I'm supporting the point that, that you made, you know, which is what we focus on is, is what we create. And you've got this story that I got one recently, Richard, of a 25-year-old young man of peak performance who had been uh, in his home, shades pulled for six months. And it was a very similar accounting where he was focused on his body, focused on what wasn't working. And a couple of strong sessions just emphasizing that, you know, uh, you create what you, you, your brain is amazing. It will create and expand whatever you focus on. So why would you focus on that? And, uh, you know, within a week, uh, a, a remarkable turnaround. The challenge, of course, in, in this is the young man you're talking about in this particular young man, they're doer. They were doers, right? He followed through and actually did the process. Uh, and that takes, uh, that's not what everyone can do, it seems. Yes. Yes, that that is true. That, that that this guy was 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 really willing to 
to try and experiment. You know, it, to, it, yeah. took, it took courage. And also he was willing to go against um, previous advice, um, not just from a, a, a therapist, but, but also from, from his reading. His understanding of, of therapy was that you had to go back and find the bad stuff, find the stuff when mm -hmm. it went wrong. That was his, yeah. his understanding. And I have to tell you, that was the understanding I was brought up with. And uh, yeah. it took me a while to, uh, to realize that this wasn't the best way of going in terms of making changes towards happiness. It's, it is not the best way, to, at least in my view. And, and I think the research, it's interesting since, uh, what was it, in 1999, 2000, thereabouts, when uh, Lisa, for the American Psychological Association, they created a division for positive psychology. And prior to that, all we yes. had done was study pathology as a way to figure out how to feel better. And in the last yes. 20 so years, a lot of funding and research has gone into uh, positive psychology. And as, as a result of that, we now have a much better sense of how to coach, instruct, point folks in the direction of how to feel better and rather than being so concerned about what happened uh, and the underlying beliefs that come from that, right? There, you know, if, if the, all these beliefs center ultimately around my worthiness, what I deserve, right? Do I deserve to be happy, safe, yes. secure, those kinds of things. And to, uh, to the, the, the best cure in a sense is to fight for and realize and experience your own security because that, is irrefutable once you've been there. Yes. I, I'm just thinking that one of the things that uh, Seligman, one of the founders of positive psychology found, yes. was that statistically, people who are depressed, uh, if you compared three groups, people on uh, drugs, antidepressant drugs, people on um, more traditional psychotherapy, and people who did no psychotherapy, no drugs, but simply recorded what they were grateful for at the end of each day. The gratitude group did so much better than the other two groups. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Extraordinary, simple exercise, right? And it continues, that's been repeated. Uh, it's I, been I, repeated I, over and over again. Over and over, <laughs> yes. However, we're dealing with, yes, but, but I, over against that, we're dealing with a hundred years of teaching uh, which is based on the medical model that you have to find out what's wrong. And so here, here's a question for you. O obviously, there are times when it is useful to look at uh, what happened in the past and to see that what happened in the past is something that doesn't have to continue into the future. I think there can be value in that. So here's a, I'd be interested to know your take on this. Uh, when is it useful to go into the past and to look at the, let's say, the paradigms that you were unconsciously brought up with? Well, as time has gone on, Richard, I've become less and less convinced that it has any utility or value. Um, so I, I don't do much of that anymore. Now, if, yeah. you, uh, if you do have a skillful therapist who can teach, as you're going back to do that, a way to 
dissociate and become more of an observer and this and then you're capable of learning versus you know just digging into that emotion again the right. sort of uh, this dissociative process that, that banner and grinder really came up with uh in neurolinguistic programming uh that process i find very very helpful at times uh but the more i can convince folks that once they understand sort of what belief would one have to have to in order to to have these thoughts or to act that way or to respond that way once you've kind of identified a sense of what beliefs would be driving these thoughts or these actions that make me unhappy or angry or so yes that's about as far as i typically go with folks i i then start looking at the other end of the stick right uh, right. I don't want that. Well, what do I want? And then try to get uh, folks focused on becoming very interested in in what they want. We run into though, and there's a practical piece here, which is when we when we when we map people's brains with a QEEG, we can see the pat their patterns that that have unfolded, and yes. there is there is an evolution of deterioration that occurs if i'm chronically anxious fight flight right and i yes. hold on to that for years then depression and anxiety become part of that and then it, the brain actually begins to shift into these uh these states where there's certain asymmetries in our brain waves that that are more reflective of a process uh, of, of of dysfunction unfolding in the brain so yeah. It is work. It it does require effort. It's not going to be overnight. If if someone's yeah, listening yeah. and they're they're in a deeper, darker place, but it's sort of like it doesn't change the the solution. You know, if I'm if I'm twenty pounds overweight or I'm a hundred pounds overweight, the solution's still the same. One of us has got to work a lot harder than the other, and or at least over time. And as long as we have that understanding, that that depending on how deep and dark that is it can it can take a while but still it doesn't have to take a long while and the the path is still the same path fight for what you want to feel what you want to experience what you what you want to laugh at and enjoy so what i'm hearing you saying with regard to the the past is that uh if we delve into the past and go into the feelings of let's say of hurt in the past then that augments the pathways of hurt within the to be very simplistic the, the pathways of hurt within the brain and that is not helpful however there can be value in being able to see a limited belief that we had and to be able to look at that belief uh from a witnessing point of view would you agree with that yes exactly from a witnessing point of view and then to determine if this is a disempowering limiting painful life robbing belief what would i like to believe instead and yes. so once i've identified that now moving to the path of how do we get there versus you know how does that make you feel and spending lots of time uh, which we you know we did in therapy for uh, like you say really decades yeah uh, just digging through the past over and over again thinking that there would be some 
light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, there isn't. Yes, and, and it's and it, it's important for everyone to understand. I think you would agree with this, Richard, but it's become so clear to me with time. What we open with, it, it's important to always appreciate that. But when you engage a thought, it's not a neutral event. It's yes. a moment. It's a moment where you've now supported, encouraged, and just fed that thought. So there are no neutral moments. So you're either feeding pain, misery, looking at the past, beliefs, thinking about circumstances that make you miserable, thereby making them stronger, thereby running, creating neural connections in the brain that literally get stronger and stronger and stronger. So we, we have to approach this, and in a sense, it's a mindfulness issue, right? It's being mindful moment to moment so that I'm, I'm thinking on purpose. I'm attending on yes. purpose. I'm directing my attention on purpose toward what I want, what feels good, yeah. and what's going to create goodness. And coincidentally, of course, this is exactly the fundamental, most important key for parents to keep in mind when they're raising children. You know, we've become yeah. a culture where, uh, where we want to talk to kids about everything, give them more sophisticated emotional labels, and then uh, you know, just talk their day to death about what didn't go wrong. And we spend virtually no time uh, talking about uh, what went beautifully. And right. if, we have a, if we have a behaviorally challenging child, we keep feeding into those behaviorally challenging moments rather than ignoring them and walking away, which is what needs right. to happen 99% of the time. So. So, so what I hear you saying here, um, generally, generally is, is that if we are focused on what we want to get away from, we will have more of what we want to get away from because that is how the brain works. Exactly. Whereas if we're focused on what we want to move toward, then we have a chance of changing our brains and changing ourselves uh, much, uh, infinitely more likely. Well, and I would, yes, yes. I would even go stronger. I would say if I'm fully resolved that that's where I'm going to go, I'm going to go in that direction. Yes. And I give up every ounce of wanting to be a victim, blaming someone else, and not taking full responsibility for my state in this moment. Yes. Then if I do that, it's, it, we, we can move to the guarantee level. That's a, that's a hard ask for people, but that, it's really the way it works. Uh, if I if I if I have if there, nothing else will do, other than happiness. If nothing else will do other than joyous creation and living fully, then uh, then I'm going to devote my life. I'm going to devote every moment. I'm going to realize I cannot give a thought, a, a moment of attention to the things I don't want, don't like, don't agree with, uh, unless it's the tiger chasing me. So, yes, exactly. Those, well, let, let me let me put it. Sorry, go on. Well, I see those are self-explanatory, most of those moments, so. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, what you do what, you know, with, with kids and how parents treat their kids. And I'm thinking of uh, your tantrum fixer, um, <laughs> which is on your website. Yep. And uh, is, is that something that's helpful to adults? Have you used that with adults? Well, uh, well, the, the, the fundamental premise 
behind almost all my all those programs. The, the starting point for uh, children and adults is that if you engage it, it must grow. That's that's the simple way to think about it. So if you engage it, a thought, it must right. grow. If you engage a behavior, it must grow. If you engage your children when they're uh, tantruming or fearful or angry, if you repeatedly engage, then uh, I call I, I I use a weeds and seed metaphor. I, you know, I call the, the unwanted stuff weeds, and the, the stuff we want is seeds. And so you you starve weeds and you feed seeds. And so that that fundamental premise, uh, yes, I use that with adults who have anger management, uh, kids. Uh, parents, I try to explain that what's going on in the outside world is the same thing that's going on in the inside of our brains. And uh, so it's, and it's re- remarkably, remarkably helpful. Uh, and how quickly kids can learn is amazing when we understand how we have influence. Yes. Uh, we, so I- we, we, think, we think our words matter uh, when, and kind of ignore what we're doing with our behavior and 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 how we're responding to certain moments when words are way yes. down the list of importance. They aren't. It's not that they're unimportant. We, there are other prioritized things. Uh, yes. So uh, the the point I'm the, the big point I'm taking what you just said is is the it's engagement with let's say anger that that continues anger. It, yes, and that and that literature is is remarkably clear, right? Is it, I mean, it, it's been studied so many times we don't you don't see much research about it now but you know therapists used to have punching bags in their office right for for kids and adolescents and adults okay think about it and then they'd punch and then they'd go oh i feel great and then i feel great and then you know week by week they would get this release but their anger was building they were more rageful they were more so there is no solution in the uh, engagement of the emotion or the thought behavior that we don't want, other than more misery. So if you always say you want more misery, keep at it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd be interested in, in uh, I've, I, I have seen some of that research. I'd, I'd be interested to, uh, to find more about that. I mean, the research that shows that people who do a lot of uh, hitting and, and punching, it tends to exacerbate their anger as opposed to uh, relieve it. The relief is temporary. Well, if they do the hitting and punching as a, like visualizing and thinking about the person who's, who's the source of anger. Uh, yes. So that's where it becomes problematic. I don't think there's any data to argue if people go to a kickboxing class or boxing class that, that they're going to become a, a, a more angry or aggressive person uh i don't know yeah, any yeah. studies i do that the literature on on adolescents with video games and aggression very solid that we end up with more aggressive kids which is another podcast yeah. in and of itself <laughs> yes well it's interesting because i i have a, my, my own personal experience in therapy of, of which i i did a lot of different kinds of therapy as i think you did uh, was that I did do a lot of punching bags on hitting mattresses and so on. I mean, a lot. Mm. And it's really interesting because uh, I have my own personal experience of what was beneficial and what was not beneficial about that. What was not beneficial is exactly what you said. 
it did not reduce my anger. I mean, no way. And, <laughs> but no. what it did give me, and, and I have to um, context this by saying that I was brought up in, in a, a, a British society in which uh, expression of feelings, particularly anger or sadness, laughter was allowed, but la anger or sadness were not allowed. And so what it, the positive effect on me was that it, it did let me know that I did not have to uh, suppress or judge my mm. anger. In other words, yeah. I didn't have to. Yep. Yep. I didn't have to walk around tense through a, through my fear of my own anger. Uh, I made friends with my own anger, so that part was useful. But no, it did not reduce my anger. I am absolutely convinced of that. And I had to. I there were other things that I did to, uh, which I won't go into now, but which re reduced the anger. But it is. It is. Um, uh, that's, of course, one of the things uh, in in the book is about it, the different ways you really can reduce anger. Um, yeah. Well, and, yes. and, and, and in that, it's important in, in your book sort of acknowledges this as well as that story, which is that no part of this conversation is meant to suggest that we, quote, shouldn't have a moment, right? It's not that we shouldn't have anger. If you've got anger, yes. it's there. We accept that we, we we don't fight with what's already there. We don't we don't say we don't fight against whether it's children, adolescents, or adults. We we're not. There's no part of the message that's wanting to repress or restrict that. It's just yes, it's about yeah. dis it's about disinterest in it uh, because if the mind finds it interesting, it's going to keep uh, expanding that. So yes, it by you the way. Yes. Well, you, you're speaking of your book. It just reminds me. I've got a very dear friend, uh, who, and he and his wife have very opposite, opposed political perspectives. Um, yes. One left, one right. Very, I mean, in quite severe. So I, I gave them a copy of your book, and I said, I, I think that this could be really, really useful, because in that. In the context of their disagreements, of course, as as when the when the election was happening, and still in what's happening in the world, you know that otherizing uh, concept applies tremendously. And my friend is also a lawyer and a mediator, so he's found that very useful in his mediation with his clients as well to help them understand that concept and and how it separates and makes us as if we are different when really it's just a belief here. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that very useful for them. Oh, great. And, and did it, did his wife read it as well? Oh yeah. They both, they both read, they're both committed to, to being able to maintain the relationship, which they've done for years, but reducing the amount of conflict they have over uh, uh, disparate perspectives on oh. our political world. That, that's that's great to hear. I, yeah, I've been very fascinated, as as you know from from the book, in otherizing and you know our ability to turn people whom we perceive as different from us into the other, yeah. um, meaning the other being someone who's less worthy of compassion, respect, or or love. And actually, it goes right back to what you started with. It it's uh, it takes us away from our own compassion, from our own recognition of the 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 essentials soul and beauty of another human being that's right that's right and and 
And in our holding to a belief that separates, we separate ourselves as well. And that's a deeper level discussion, of course, but once we know our own worthiness completely, we really can't do that to ourselves or to another human being. And yes, that's a, that's a big step, but it, it is the ultimate sort of uh, process that unfolds as, as we move toward acceptance, as we move toward seeing everyone as whole and complete, as we move toward we're all doing our best and yes. feeling more lightness and ease we experience these moments and they're simple moments they're not complex moments they're these moments where life just is perfect life is easeful life is complete and then we have that inner experience that we in that moment of deser are deserving of that perfection of that ease yes. of that beauty and in that then we start to soften and soften Yes. So that. So so yes. when so when we are when we are divisive and we otherize people who are different from us, that is a mark. Is what I'm hearing you say of our unworthiness, our sense of unworthiness, not our true unworthiness, but our sense. That's of right. That, that's that exactly. And in yes, I, and I in believe. Very, that. Yeah, in a very real sense, we we otherize in order to feel better and stronger here. Because the possibility that they could, a component of their message or their belief could be right threatens us at such a deep level. And that's what points to our insecurity. Like, oh, I could yes. be right and I could be wrong. You could be right. You could be, quote, right or wrong is a very relative term, but yes. yes. So we, we only want to feel stronger or better or more worthy than other people if we have a, an underlying doubt about ourselves. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, Richard, it, we would be remiss if we did not mention the role of, of, of meditation, of moments to use uh, quiet time, regardless of the process that someone wants to use, a breath meditation, mantra meditation, uh, but time to, practice sitting with oneself to let those thoughts and let the mind do its thing but not attach to it i know it feels like i'm interjecting this here as uh, uh, sort of abruptly but it just seems so important as we're having this conversation yes because we both value yes. that we both understand it and it is a valuable tool for the for neutralizing uh, and becoming detached from uh, the mind and it's and its thoughts and even all that other rising stuff that hooks people who are seekers. Yeah. Uh, you and I see it all the time. So we, we, we yeah. must emphasize that value and the importance of that. So, so the way I think of meditation in relation to what we're talking about is that when we choose, let's say, to spend 15 minutes meditating, we're making a choice to spend 15 minutes focusing on the essential greatness, I'm going to use that word, of the self, the greatness of ourselves, mm. the beauty, the kindness, the love, the joy. We are deliberately focusing on that and accentuating that within our being, within our bodies, within our emotions, within our minds, within our spiritual bodies. And in, in doing that, 
we are augmenting that. We are making a decision to augment that. And even if we cannot keep that up the whole day, that bit of practice every day helps us anchor ourselves to that, uh, let's say, higher self within or more content self within, more peaceful self within, more joyous self within. Mm, I love that, Richard. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps oh, we, could, yes. we could, do we have time to inject one more thought in terms of useful practices? Go for it. Okay. So I also feel, given the research over the past 20 years, it's important that, that folks understand the value of breathing and how we breathe. And particularly yes. heart rate variability breathing, because we now understand that uh, anxiety, particularly anxious states that lead to depression, these states are greatly influenced by the rhythm of the heart. And so that yes. heart rhythm is influenced by our breathing. And so we have yes. this capacity to activate our parasympathetic or the calming system right? The sympathetic system being stress, fight, fight. And most, most of us in this culture are locked in some degree of a fight, fight mode, which is sympathetic over arousal. And with that comes adrenal yes. fatigue, all sorts of things. But yeah, uh, yes, totally agree. Little, yes. Yes. With a little bit of, of heart rate variability, breathing uh, three times a day, five times a day, uh, we're able to change the rhythm of the heart, which through the vagus nerve communicates to the brain and actually changes the asymmetry of the brain and shifts us out of this sympathetic arousal. Uh, so it's a remarkably useful tool in this process of learning to, to move toward calm and move toward ease. And uh, in fact, yes. we, we now do heart rate variability breathing before we meditate every single day. So it's very, very useful. Oh, really? That's interesting. I have not tried that. So, um, well, maybe I have, because I, I think one of the methods, you, um, let me know if you agree with this. It, it, I think one of the methods is that if you uh, breathe in deep and then uh, take maybe at least twice as long of your out-breath, that has effect on, on heart rate variability. Oh, it definitely true? does. Definitely does. Yeah. Uh, so, so actually, so actually, Without having thought of uh, HRV, uh, heart rate variability, I, 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 that is something that, that I do uh, practice before meditation. What, what, you, what else do you do? That, yes, go on. Well, heart rate variability, the, the research is pretty clear. Somewhere around five and a half to six breaths per minute is optimal. And yes, yes. Uh, uh, if folks are interested, they could go to heartmath.com. Uh, and I, I have no ownership stake in heart math, but uh, they've been doing this research for 25 years. So that's, let me just get that clear. So that's H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H dot com. Yep. Okay, thank you. Yep. And uh, they have a very simple, well, they have lots of literature on there that you can learn all about uh, coherence and the research on coherence, which is a more sophisticated form of measuring heart rate variability Heart rate variability is really just uh, the difference between when we breathe in deep at, the, at the, our highest uh, in-breath, the heart's breathing much faster. 
And when we breathe all the way out, the heart is breathing slower. That difference, that variability is tied to longevity, to health, to happiness, to just an an amazing number of outcomes. Um, But yes, yes, yes. Heart math with their very simple biofeedback device, it's like 150 bucks, something like that. So people can have it at home measures coherence, which is a more sophisticated measure of the rhythm of the heart. And, um, and it's, you know, within two weeks, you can completely transform that pattern of coherence by breathing three, four, five, five minute segments a day, using this biofeedback device. And so I'm a big fan of that. I'm very, very big fan because I'm watching the impact on, on folks, uh, because it, it's so quickly for intense anxiety states, it's, it's, it, it brings a calming and soothing with a bit of practice. Again, practice is, is the key. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Randy. That, that's really interesting. I, I think I'm going to get one. That sounds, oh, it, I, even though I do practice it in a very simple way, I've, I've never measured it. And uh, I think that sounds quite fascinating. Well, I've, it's and let's face it, the cost the cost of that machine is is the cost of you know um, probably less than the cost of a, a psychotherapy session. Oh, exactly, exactly. And um, it's interesting, uh, Richard, because we use it in our in our clinic doing neurofeedback. We have a lot of folks doing heart rate variability breathing, and uh, some of them are very seasoned meditators. And they're, it's always interesting because uh, rarely. Uh, is their heart coherence in a in a very healthy arena because it's uh, it's a it's a very nuanced state like sort of like meditation and dropping in deeper it's a very nuanced state so I'll be interested in your feedback once you try it and, and encourage everyone to <laughs> okay because it's so simple and it has such value it's remarkable so yeah thank you that that's You're really sure. interesting. Sure, absolutely. Okay, Randy, this is this has been great. I I got one last question for you. Sure, um, sure. And you might have answered this question already, but you, you've been involved in an enormous number of different methods of helping people feel more at ease and joyful. Yes, um, yeah. And you've already actually mentioned a few things, but uh, okay, can you give one example of something? that you've learned in your studies that has had the most profound effect on you as a person in your, in your own life. If you had to choose, like, uh, this is probably an unfair question, but anyway, if you just choose one thing that you think, oh my goodness, that this has really changed my life. What would you say that was? I I would say learning to manage state, your state. So that when something happens, because we, uh, until we reach some enlightened state, we get hooked, right? And so when you're hooked, yes. recognizing that, that, that the early that hook has not gone deep. So the, the sooner I can recognize that hook is just like, a, like a, a fly has landed on my arm and I flick it off, right? Yes. I, I can actually do that early in that moment. And then turn quickly toward a state change, right? So learning to do the things that get me out of getting hooked for a moment 
Yeah. And and so you could think the, the sometimes you can do uh, bizarre kinds of things. You know, you can jump in, take a cold shower. You can do jumping jacks. I could go jump in the lake. I can put on some music and just dance in some bizarre way that I'd be embarrassed if anyone saw it. But uh, to be able to change that state quickly so it, it doesn't yes. linger as a pharmacological event in my body, I create a new pharmacological event, right, of joy. <laughs> I like that. Right. And so then I'm, I'm now in a state where I can direct my thoughts more easily because directing your thoughts to quote the positive is very difficult. I find it is, I find it's easier when I can do the state change first and make it strong and make it dramatic and then be clear about what I want, envision how I want to be in that moment, how I want to serve, how I want to live my life. And that's probably one of the skills I use every, every day at some point. Is, 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 is taking control of my state because otherwise if I'm letting the environment control my state, I, I become the victim, right? How somebody treats me. Right. So, me. yes. So if you, so if you, what I hear you saying is that, is that if you, if you, recognizing that state early is, is crucial. So if you're in a state of, let's say anger or, or fear to recognize that before the pharma, pharmacology, pharmacological uh, events in your body take you over and, yeah. and diminish your intelligence and, That's right. That's and diminish it. your ability to get out of that state. You want to be able to recognize it early, get out of it. And then once you're out of it, you actually have a mind to, that you can use to create what you want to create in your life. Yeah. Beautifully summarized. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. That's, that's it. Cool. And cool. That is fantastic. Well, Let's. Oh, would you, sorry, you had another moment, another thought. Well, just uh, as you were saying that the the awareness piece, of course, remains key. That's why we go back to what we talked about earlier. That sense of of being intentional and aware in every moment, because I've got to catch that hook early. Because if I get in deep in that rabbit hole, this is a it's a different animal. Two hours after I'm fuming at somebody, right? So <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. This has been well. Great. Thank, thank you, Randy. This has been a, a really enjoyable conversation for me. Very fascinating, and thank you for for being so clear and so open. It's a pleasure talking to you, Randy. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure here. I wish you well, Richard. Wish you well too. All right. Take bye care. for now. Bye bye now. So glad you could join us in the Curiosity Room on this episode of Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette, featuring Dr. Randy Kale. We always want to hear what you think, and we're also putting together listener questions for upcoming episodes. So if you have a question or comment for Richard, please send in a voice memo or email to superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. It also really helps people find the show if you take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned to this feed. Our next episode is scheduled to come out in two weeks, so subscribe now to make sure you catch episode 15, 
which just so happens to be very relevant to our podcast title, The Liberating Power of Curiosity. Till next time, stay curious.